0: You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. I've been doing this podcast for some time now and had the chance to speak to some very special, brave and resilient individuals who risk everything to tell the truth. Once I stopped recording, conversations continued. Coffee dates and future visits were dutifully arranged. Because another thing that all the journalists and activists that I've interviewed have in common is that they are unquestionably kind and likable. But sometimes, where the freedom of the press is concerned, it's also important to bring attention to someone who's very complicated and controversial. Someone who has both ardent supporters and unwavering critics. That someone is Julian Assange. On 7th of September, the old Bailey in London started hearings regarding his extradition to the US. The founder of WikiLeaks was indicted on 17 counts under the Espionage Act and is facing 175 years in a US prison. This is an unprecedented case that could have ramifications for whistleblowers everywhere and freedom of speech in general. It's the first time in US history when a publisher has been charged under the Espionage Act. A publisher who's not even a US citizen, Assange is Australian. WikiLeaks, set up by Julian Assange and his colleagues in 2006, rose to prominence in 2010, when it published documents revealing misconduct by the US military in Iraq and Afghanistan, including the extrajudicial killings of civilians. The war logs and diplomatic cables were provided by US Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. Was imprisoned for seven years between 2010 and 2017 for the leaks. Back then, the stories were run by major newspapers such as The Guardian, Der Spiegel, and New York Times. Amongst other notable leaks published by WikiLeaks are the Guantanamo Bay files, the Syria files that included the emails of Syrian politicians and officials, the Sony picture hack, and many others. One of the most notorious releases that gave Donald Trump the upper hand in the 2016 US presidential elections were, of course, the hacked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman John Podesta and the Democratic National Committee. In the wake of the hack, Assange was accused of collaborating with the Russian government, which he has denied. In 2012, Julian Assange applied for political asylum in Ecuadorian embassy, where he remained until 2019. He made that decision to avoid extradition to Sweden, where he faced sexual assault allegations from two victims. Assange repeatedly denied any wrongdoings and insisted that the case was politically motivated. The case was subsequently closed and reopened three times, with a statute of limitation expiring in 2020. So, the Ecuadorian embassy became Assange's home and prison for seven years, because the second he stepped out, he would be arrested and extradited to Sweden. After pro san Ecuadorian president Rafael Correa was succeeded by the more conservative Lenin Moreno, the journalist's asylum was revoked. Immediately afterwards, he was arrested by the Metropolitan Police and sentenced to 50 weeks in prison for breaching his bail conditions. Coming back to the Assange's extradition trial, there's been notably little coverage of it from the mainstream media in the UK, but I've managed to find someone who knows everything about the ins and outs of this case And has been following it from the very start. It's Rebecca Vincent from Reporters Without Borders. So, uh, Reporters Without Borders, um, uh, from what I read, was the only NGO actually that was allowed to observe Julian Assange's extradition proceedings and not without some difficulties. And I've been following your reporting and you've been following his case quite closely and updating all of us via social media and what's happening with his case at the moment and how are things looking for him?
1: Well, firstly, um, I want to clarify that it's not that we were allowed to monitor these proceedings. It's that we fought our way in. We were subject to the same restrictions as other NGOs. We attempted to get our observers uh, accredited properly through the court now, the court refused to recognize professional NGO observers as having any different role to the public in these proceedings. And this has been the case previously as well. In, in February, when there was a week at uh, the Woolwich Crown Court, we went through similar. Um, and so then the only way that we can access uh, the hearing is to queue for spaces in the public gallery. So this was already difficult enough in february um and of course it was winter weather you have to queue quite early i was out there uh by about 5 30 a.m most mornings for a 10 a.m hearing so if you can imagine um Mm. fight your way in uh and at that time we thought it was difficult but there were 20 seats in the public gallery some of them are held for the family and then the others go to members of the public now fast forward to september at the old bailey and then you had COVID in the mix. And so they allowed so few people in, it became nearly impossible to access. So the way we were able to get in, frankly, was with the support of a, a network of of activists um you know uh, people mostly grassroots people who, who care about assange's case who have been uh organizing around that for years that you know they saw the importance of having professional ngo observers so they helped us get in because this went on for a full month there's there's no way that you know one person or two people can really manage to queue for hours every single day to get in and then follow hours of complex legal arguments right so um, we fought our way in and we got in. We were, we were present at, for at least part of the proceedings on most days of the September hearing. Um, and I was able to get in systematically for the entire proceedings in February. So I was able to more systematically monitor what happened then. February was um, when both sides laid out their legal arguments. And then September was uh, witness testimony being heard. So um I, I think that's an important point because other NGOs uh, could have tried the same thing that we did. nobody did. Um, we don't have many resources in London. We have two members of staff here but this this case is very important to us and I've been alarmed at the lack of uh, mainstream attention to the case. Um, Why do you think
0: uh, that happened? Why do you think there was less attention than in the previous years
1: well it's it's a tricky case it's a very in fact a very uh, polarizing case, more so probably than any other case I've worked on in my entire career. Part of that is is due to misperceptions, very common misperceptions about many angles of the case. I also believe that there has been a concerted attempt uh, to to smear him in the media. I think many people um, have very strong opinions about Julian Assange one way or the other. And that is sometimes based on just a gut reaction from headlines, maybe even many years ago. I find that on an individual level, when you can engage in proper conversations about this case, actually, very easily, you can address these issues. And most people are surprised that they believe things that actually aren't true, right? But it's it's hard to be able to systematically do that. And many people are not open minded enough for whatever reason to consider that they may have an innate bias about this case. So... It's been really effective for the governments involved because if Julian Assange is publicly seen as an unlikable figure, he then doesn't have this public support. And this lack of public support, this lack of public pressure is allowing the US and UK governments to, to engage in behavior that these democratic states are not meant to engage in. What we are witnessing is a political prosecution by states that are not meant to do that. And I think that is very difficult for people in the US and UK uh, to to stomach or to accept. So that that is what has to be challenged. I've never really witnessed uh, anything like that in, in other cases that I've worked on. How is the case looking at the moment for Julian? So what we're waiting on um, at the moment is the defense submitted their closing arguments um, just last week. This was in writing. There were not uh, open proceedings in court around this. And the prosecution has, I believe, two weeks from that date to to respond. And then the judge will continue to reflect and consider uh, a hearing has been called for the 4th of January at the Old Bailey where a decision will be announced. So that will be the next key date in this case uh, where we learn of the fates of Mr. Assange Um, Now, we're hearing as well that there's concern that the um, appeals process could be seriously expedited because this is a process that normally takes years. But but some people with knowledge of the case do believe that we could we could see a situation where he could possibly be extradited next year. So now is a really crucial time. So, of course, it's a matter before the courts. But I believe there is still a window for political pressure on the U.K., um, and it's important to note as well that this this was a political decision of the UK. This, does not, this did not have to go to the court. The Home Office gave the green light to the US extradition request, which meant that then it became a matter for the court to consider. Uh, but the UK could have taken a stand. And I believe that there are still things that can be done at the political level if we choose. Now, I imagine that the UK government is under tremendous pressure by the US government uh, to hand Mr. Assange over. But it has been very well established uh, that um, there there are political motivations in this case. That, that is certainly the position of Reporters Without Borders and other NGOs. And that is uh, the bulk of the evidence that we heard in September at the Old Bailey. Um, a lot of the witness testimony supported that point. Now, political offence is meant to be a bar to extradition from the UK. That in and of itself should prevent him from being handed over. Um, but at the moment it remains to be seen. So all eyes, you know, remain on what the UK will do between now and the 4th of January, and then what will happen in the appeals process. Um, and at the same time, we we watch closely politically what's happening in the US because, you know, there there are chances for the US government to also drop this case. This is what we call for all the time is for the charges against him to be dropped. Uh, he, he should not be extradited, but this case should not be open in the first place. So you know uh history to date has shown that you know n- none of the uh governments over the past 10 years that this has has been going on um have have really acted in the interests of of free expression privacy rights and human rights but at the moment we have a window now where perhaps president trump could consider issuing a pardon on his way out uh and if not we will then be calling on uh president elect biden once he's in office uh to drop the case at that point
0: so I wanted to talk a bit more about Trump because obviously at the very um, beginning of his presidency and during his um, first campaign in uh, twenty in twenty sixteen, um, the DNC leaks provided by WikiLeaks were arguably quite beneficial for Trump, and he famously said that he loved WikiLeaks um, on, during one of his campaign rallies. And now it seems that he took even harsher stance on. Julian Assange, than his predecessor, um, Barack Obama, what do you
1: think changed? Well, that is really worth noting that although at any point the Obama administration could have actively moved against Assange, they did not. It was Mm. the Trump administration that decided to do so. Uh, you know, we can speculate as to the reasons, but but the fact of the matter is that the Trump administration has very actively pursued Assange and other whistleblowers. We're alarmingly seeing uh, increased use of the Espionage Act against uh, journalists, journalistic sources, whistleblowers. There's a number of other cases of concern, too. And the law itself is problematic. It lacks a public interest defense. So at Reporters Without Borders, we've been advocating for um, amendments to the Espionage Act. I thought during the September proceedings at the Old Bailey, uh, Daniel Ellsberg's testimony in that regard was really powerful. Um, he said that you know uh, at the time of of the Pentagon Papers publication um, that, you know, this this had, had become sort of what was happening with the Espionage Act. He said that he was not given a fair trial, that Assange will not be given a fair trial, and that uh, no other journalist that would be tried under the Espionage Act could expect to receive a fair trial because of that that lack of a public interest defense. So, so the law needs to be reformed. Um, so that accounts for 17 of the 18 Uh, charges against Mr. Assange. The other one is under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, They are trying to allege that Assange uh, solicited hacking, which, uh, like many other aspects of the case, the US government does not seem to have evidence to suggest such. Um, But what's concerning is that in extradition proceedings, it doesn't necessarily matter if the US government has evidence for what it is alleging. It's just, you know, that uh, they have to make the case that That Assange should be extradited to the US for that to be considered before the courts there. But we're really concerned because what we're looking at is a possible 175 years in prison on the various charges, and he would be very likely to be held under uh, special uh, administrative measures, which mean, I mean, solitary confinement in the harshest possible sense. Really, some of the testimony we heard from uh, experts with knowledge of the US prison systems during during the September hearings was really alarming, frankly, inhumane conditions. And we must bear in mind as well that Mr. Assange is a very vulnerable individual in that he has serious mental health issues. We heard extensive testimony about that he uh, suffers from depression from PTSD, he experiences auditory hallucinations, and has hundreds of suicidal thoughts per day. And nearly every medical expert that we heard from, except for one from the prosecution side, um, stated with, with clarity that they believe that he would be at high risk of suicide if extradited and held in those conditions in the US. So sometimes we comment that this is a possible matter of life or death, and that that is why. So... Um, we believe that he should be released full stop, but there are also serious humanitarian concerns at play there. And on those grounds, he should be released as well, and certainly not extradited uh, to face you know, an even more uh, triggering and disturbing environment.
0: And you mentioned before uh, that um, Julian Assange is seen as this divisive figure, that there's not no one opinion on him. And I definitely, when I started doing my research, and obviously I knew about Assange's case, I had my preconceived notions of who he was. And um, after I read up on him, I realized that it's, it's really difficult to find one single truth. Everything is quite obscure. To some, he's A hero to other and a fighter for truth to others he's a narcissistic opportunist or a Russian spy and if we try for a moment to switch off our emotions and think about the bigger picture why is Assange's case so important in principle and and what implications does it have for other whistleblowers and freedom of the press in general
1: so that is exactly the question that everybody should be asking. It really shouldn't be a matter of whether or not we like Julian Assange, whether or not things that we think are true are true or not. It is exactly you know what we should be looking at is why he is being targeted and then the implications for everyone else. So at Reporters Without Borders, we fully believe that he is being targeted for his contributions to journalism. So the leaked information that was published informed Um, extensive public interest reporting. The public had a right to know uh, what the U.S. government and what other governments were up to. This reporting exposed war crimes and other serious uh, violations uh, by the U.S. government and other states. So when we look at that and then we look at the implications of what happens if the U.S. government successfully prosecutes him, it is nothing short of alarming. This case has his will have historic ramifications one way or the other we will be dealing with the consequences of this for years to come this is the first time that we've seen um uh, the the u.s government go after a publisher on espionage act charges so the others were uh the leakers the whistleblowers themselves so this is a this is a different sort of a case this is going after assange and wikileaks for publishing the information not leaking it directly Um, if they are successful this could in theory be pl- applied to any other publisher so we're looking at you know mainstream uh media organizations that you know that carry these reports as well um it's difficult for me to understand why why these outlets uh haven't taken a stronger position in this case it's it's almost as if um especially those in the mainstream media have become convinced that it somehow won't apply to them it very much will this case could actually change the landscape for journalism for years to come and not just in the US or UK but internationally Um, the fact that they can go after Assange he's not a US citizen he doesn't have significant ties to the US the fact that you know a state uh, a superpower could just you know, go after anybody in any other part of the world and and bring them to the United States and and imprison them for the rest of their lives. I mean, that should be of concern um, well beyond a press freedom perspective as well. There there are many angles of this case that it's just shocking. Um, And when you look at that, the sort of either indifference or active dislike of Assange and the sort of feeling that, oh, well, he deserves what he is getting um, is really not just short-sighted, but actually dangerous for all of us
0: wanted to talk about something else as well because obviously we've all been glued to our tvs and our screens um, um during the latest uh, u.s presidential elections and well so far biden won and it should be a fact and not a theory as many people say but we're seeing a very dangerous pattern of disinformation a pattern that's been uh, emerging for the past um several years with Trump's uh, tweets now flagged as untruthful and even his beloved Fox News denouncing him, basically, or cutting him off. But the damage has already been done. And you would think that uh, we live in the age where just to see is information is is right in front of you whenever you click um, on on your browser. But everyone seems to have their own truth, as we can see even with uh, Assange's case. Um, you've obviously... Been working with many journalists, and how can how can we combat this disinformation? And can journalists do it alone, or do we need some sort of a coalition and a set of laws to combat this uh, malaise?
1: Well, the danger really of, of of President Trump's legacy is that not only did it fuel this this climate um, and this proliferation of disinformation, much of it came from Trump himself, from the White House itself. Um, we've been, you know, encouraged to see the resilience of many journalists and media outlets in the US. Um, And at the moment, there there is a serious public debate taking place on just this. I think, you know, the world has been a little bit slow to wake up to the reality of these kinds of threats. And and, um, the media has been a bit slow to to try uh, to combat them. But we are, you know, we are seeing signs of that now. I think really what it highlights is the importance of um, holding public officials to account um, because this is not just something that the media can fix by itself. I think we need to demand batter from those who hold office in democratic countries. Um, it's not just dis- disinformation that proliferated under the Trump administration. Um, we saw an environment um, where violence became more of a norm in the United States. I mean, the country of the First Amendment. This year alone, the U.S. press Freedom Tracker documented more than 880 aggressions uh, towards journalists. Many of these uh, were in the context of journalists um, covering uh, protests across the country um, that broke out um, the Black Lives Matter protests that started in May and continue to this day. Uh, we've seen journalists be arrested live on air, tear gassed, struck with rubber rubber bullets and otherwise targeted Um, And that is something, you know, as as somebody who was born and raised in the US myself, that it is shocking to me to see that that has happened in my country of birth, you know, the country that is meant to set this example uh, for free speech for the rest of the world. Um, So while you can't pin every one of those acts of violence directly on Mr. Trump, what, what we can say is that his... His active hostility towards the press, his violent rhetoric towards the press, I mean, he applied terms like enemies of the people to the media, fueled this sort of, you know, this public distrust in media and and then sort of acts of aggression. Um. So public officials really have to bear in mind the consequences that their words can have, the real-life implications that this can play out. Um. It wasn't just this year's aggressions either. I, I'm thinking now of the, the massacre in the Capital Gazette, newsroom um i believe two years ago now um you know again it's something that the this this active hostility towards media has just emboldened those who would wish to use violence to silence critical voices and of course that doesn't just have ramifications within the united states that sets an example for others across the world so i'm thinking of you know figures that have have popped up you know with the same sort of hostile rhetoric as as President Trump, uh we have Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, and, and and many others. Um so that that is a really dangerous trend that has to be nipped in the bud. And I think it does go hand in hand with sort of the the other trends that you were mentioning with regard to disinformation. I think there's just there's a time now really for um a reset uh in many countries and hopefully if the United States starts to take steps back towards these commitments itself and and if we start to see more accountability of officials there I'm hoping that that will also have a knock-on impact elsewhere I'm hoping now that it will go out of fashion uh for this sort of uh behavior and rhetoric to continue because it is really dangerous
0: well, let's hope that uh, Trump concedes at some point uh, and he doesn't have to be dragged out of the White House uh, by
1: some policemen although of course I'd like to see that <laughs> um it's funny because those of us who work on other parts of the world can see this for what it is you know those coming from uh work on more author- authoritarian uh places it's it, <laughs> that that is what we're dealing with and it's now it's extreme now with with uh with President Trump refusing to acknowledge the results of a, a fair and free election but you know, those of us who have worked in more authoritarian places were pointing to these kinds of trends throughout his presidency, and so I, I think there is a need for a more global perspective, and and this this attitude that. It can't happen here. Is never true anywhere. I think one thing we've seen is how quickly these tendencies can start to take hold anywhere, and we cannot be complacent anywhere. Whether it's journalist safety and press freedom, whether it's our human rights more broadly, or even our democratic checks and balances, um, one thing I think this experience has has taught uh, some of us is is that the value of that, and that we have to to fight for these things.
0: And um, finally, I want to ask you a more of a personal question. Well, I've been following you for, for a while now, well, at least on Twitter. I, I think um, when a woman chooses to be vocal about her views and beliefs on Twitter or any other social media, she's often faced with a wave of abuse, well, usually coming from men. Um, have you personally experienced any of it? And if that does happen, how do you handle it?
1: Um, yes, I mean, I get I get trolled quite a lot. And because I work globally, I'm in the privileged position of getting trolls from many parts of the world. Um, it's interesting, actually, how similar a lot of the rhetoric can be country to country, because there's definitely nationalist trends within it. But, you know, I, so as a human rights campaigner, I just deal with it because Twitter is a very useful tool in my work. And I refuse to let um, you know people who very cowardly are hiding often behind anonymous profiles um, try to silence me and like many other campaigners, um, the people that I'm working to support have it so much worse than me. We can see it because some of the trolling that I get will be when I wade in sort of in a discussion about others. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Rana Ayub in India. She gets among the mo- most vitriolic trolling I've ever seen. And if you tweet anything in her support, you get it to uh, Maria Reza in the Philippines and some others. It, You know, you have to have thick skin, I think. And you know even if you do sometimes it can get to you sometimes it can feel a bit more personal that's when it's harder to deal with um uh, but I think you know what I personally try to do is is disengage if it gets to feel a bit too negative or a bit too too much um you know and just just log out for a while walk away from it um but for me it's also worth bearing in mind always that I think generally I still get more positives than negatives out of using mm-hmm. Twitter in my work And I try to focus on that because it's important to share information about the campaigns that we're working on. It's important to support people that are at risk in their own countries um, and to be able to communicate in that way. So unfortunately, it does seem to be worse for women um, across the board. The women human rights defenders and journalists that I work with do tend to get it a bit worse than their their male counterparts. um, And it shouldn't be that way. Um, but one thing in a concrete way that I, I do often is, is, is try to ensure that those we work with, that people take threats against them seriously. We have we all have a tendency to kind of minimize these things when it happens to us. But um, we should be reporting things that are particularly threatening. We should be not just to the platforms, but to the police if needed. Um, just I have in mind that. Trends with regard to violence against journalists in many contexts, we've seen this pattern of abuse and threats build up online before we've seen then real life manifestation of that uh, in extreme examples in in the murders of some journalists that, you know, that possibly could have been prevented if, um, if these signs were uh, reacted to a bit earlier on. I'm thinking cases like Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta, mm. uh, Gauri Cash in India. Like these signs are sometimes there. So we none of us should minimize it. We should take it very seriously, but also um, to, to weigh the value that we get. And, and in this field of work and in journalism, it is a useful tool. And then try to develop resilience ourselves uh, to be able to deal with that. And another thing I've learned too: there is no shame in blocking and muting, and <laughs> you know, taking other steps that are needed to make it more it. Absolutely.
0: Since the recording of this episode, Belmarsh Prison, where Julian Assange is being held, was put under lockdown following a coronavirus outbreak. The final ruling of his case will be announced on the 4th of January. If you want to know more about the case and the fight to defend freedom of the press in other parts of the world, make sure to follow Rebecca Vincent on Twitter. But please, no trolls.